Don't change that station. It's time for your weekly constitutional, a weekly discussion of interesting constitutional issues from gay rights to gun rights. YWC is produced in partnership with the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier, and is hosted by Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law in Knoxville, Tennessee. Have you ever heard of Abraham Lincoln and the chicken bone case? Well, today you will learn about that. In fact, you'll learn about a lot of things that you never realized about Abraham Lincoln, mostly focused on his early life. That is before he assumed the presidency, when he spent most of his adult life as a practicing attorney. And as perhaps you've heard, he had a very interesting way of dealing with clients and cases and controversies. Stephen Wilson is an assistant curator and assistant director, I should say, at the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum at Lincoln Memorial University. And he knows about as much about Abraham Lincoln as anyone you're likely to meet. And he's also a good storyteller. My name is Stephen Wilson. I'm assistant director and curator of the Abraham Lincoln Library Museum in Harrogate, Tennessee. And that's where we met each other some months ago, isn't it? It was. It is a very impressive facility. Thank you. And you've got lots of cool stuff there, don't you? It's it's really neat. Well, one of the uh, top three collections in the world in private nonprofit hands. We have maybe 145 Lincoln documents. We've got paintings, uh, statues, uh, sheet music, a thousand pieces of sheet music, maybe three thousand pamphlets, books, uh, you name it, on Lincoln, and we've got it. Lots of beautiful paintings. There are several beautiful sculptures and busts and things of that sort, so it's visually a very appealing place as well. It is. It's, it's interesting because we can draw on the entire scope of the collection. So if I'm working on an exhibit, we can use paintings, we can use lithographs, we can use engravings, uh, we could use busts which are bronze or plaster or marble, and the only thing I have to worry about is lifting those rascals. In fact, you've got one <laughs> giant one there. We do. <laughs> we do. And it's a way to kind of tell people about Lincoln using three-dimensional artifacts and two-dimensional artifacts. Well, the particular reason we're talking today is because you sent me an email a week or so ago that I just had to. I was just intrigued by. You talked about something called the chicken bone case, and you suggested that maybe we want to talk about it because you gave me a compliment, too. You said you're a fan of the show. You listen to it on WETS, which is you can hear up in Harrogate, can't you? We can, and uh, I do every every morning when I drive from La Follette to Harrogate, or certainly if I uh, swing it on uh, the weekends, that's, that's right. great. Right. The, for uh, the listeners to our weekly show, which this is, we also have a daily show that lasts about two minutes, and it's in the morning and evening drive times, and so... When people uh, say that they're listeners, I always have to get them to specify what they're talking about, which one of them, some of, some of the people who listen on a daily basis don't even know that we have a weekly show, and then there are those who listen to the weekly. But you listen to both, so I'm so gratified and so honored by that. Um, and you thought that the chicken bone case might be something we want to talk about, and of course I immediately thought that sounds fantastic. And based on our discussion at lunch, I think we've decided to broaden it a bit. I think our focus today will be Lincoln the Lawyer which is something most people are not that familiar with because, of course, most people think of Lincoln as our president. They think of the guy with the beard and the stovepipe hat and, the, you know, his terrible assassination at the end of it. And those are all very important things. But he was 50 years old before he became president. He had a long life before he got there, and most of it was spent as a lawyer. He was a lawyer. He was a frontier lawyer, which is even more important because, of course, he's a product of the frontier. He was born in Kentucky in uh, 1809, uh, moved to Indiana at age seven, then moved to Illinois. He worked as a riverboat man, as a surveyor, as a storekeeper, did a number of different jobs. As a rail jobs. splitter. As a rail, that. yes, okay. by all means, as a rail splitter. You can't forget that. <laughs> right. Uh, and so Lincoln found his way into a career. Now, he had thought about being a blacksmith, but he decided that politics Politics and the law was where he could best use his abilities and his, his uh, vast desire to learn, to educate himself. And you mentioned he's in the frontier. I read one of those children's biographies of him probably 50 years ago when I was a little kid that suggested he had learned to read not by candlelight but by fireplace light and that he learned his letters by scraping them into the soot on a shovel. 
Is there any truth to that at all, or is that just one of those myths? No, I think there's at least partial truth to that. What uh, what Lincoln did, of course, he only had uh, less than a year of former education, probably closer to six months. So uh, being fascinated with learning, I I think he uh, had the practice of reading a book uh, maybe three or four times and then writing down what he had read just to make sure he understood it, and then comparing it and rereading the book if necessary to make sure he understood it fully. So the idea of him uh, carving letters on a, a wooden slate or on a, uh, a shovel uh, blade, it's, it's not that far-fetched. Well, that's the material at hand. Yeah, it's absolutely true. <laughs> but, I mean, that, but that's really something that we have to emphasize about Lincoln is that he was a natural intellect and he was a natural learner. He had a thirst for knowledge. And he simply didn't have a very effective way to to satisfy that thirst until later in life when he had more exposure to books and such. It's absolutely true. His his father was, uh, as Lincoln said, barely literate. He could only bunglingly sign his own name. So there was a division between Abraham Lincoln and his father. His father wanted his son to be probably more like him, a farmer, a carpenter, uh, used to those things that uh, the elder, uh, Thomas Lincoln, was used to. But Lincoln was was consumed by learning, um, by uh, seeking as much education as possible, every way possible. Uh, so reading newspapers, reading books, discussions, uh, the man's mind uh, never stopped. And as Billy Herndon said of Lincoln, his uh, ambition was like a little engine that knew no rest. It, right. it continued to fight to learn. Herndon was his law partner, right? He was his last law partner. Yeah, Billy okay. Herndon. But let's back up then. You said he'd gone off to, he's now in Illinois. So right. after Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, he gets there as a young man. He tries a variety of uh, professions. And then you were just about to say that he decided on the law. What made him do that, I wonder? I mean... That's a fairly lofty ambition for a guy who had to teach himself to write on a shovel. <laughs> it certainly is. Uh, the thing about it is Lincoln uh, um, was is continually looking for or trying to understand things. He's a very logical individual. Uh, the, the, the fact that the law seemed to offer uh, uh, logic, it seemed to act, uh, offer reasonable uh, ideas and concerns, uh, I, th- I think he was fascinated by all the ingredients surrounding the practice of law. So he, he read, in other words, he literally read law books and studying them that way. Now, later on, when he was talking to a young attorney, he said, you can either read with someone, like clerk to a law, uh, law uh, firm, or, as Lincoln did, read the books and then uh, apply to the bar. Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. wait. You're telling me something I didn't know here. Reading for the law is an older practice that still exists in a couple of places. In fact, I understand that up until quite recently in Virginia, you could still read for the law. But that was, the reading for the law was a legal apprenticeship. You essentially go and you work with the lawyers and you, you study on your own and under their guidance and you learn the practicalities as well. And at a certain point, you take a bar exam. So that, that's an old practice that still exists. It's been largely supplanted by law schools, which have only been around a little over 100 years. Okay, They really started off you know, roughly around the turn of the 20th century, modern law schools and, and the practice of people going to law school. So reading for the law, is, as I've always understood it as an apprenticeship, you're telling me that there's reading for the law that really is just that. You simply go get law books and that, learn it on your own. Is that what he did? That's exactly right. There were there were probably three law schools um, that were west of the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Mm-hmm. In the first place, Lincoln couldn't afford to go to law school, so he had to set out on this pursuit on his own. So he literally read these things, these books, and tried to understand as much as possible. Now, the experience he got uh, actually in in courtroom came through the efforts of Bowling Green, who was a judge uh, in New Salem. Uh, And what Bowling Green said to, to Lincoln basically is, well, when the court case is over and decision has been made, I will allow you to comment on proceedings. So after the jury had made their decision and Judge Bowling Green said it's decided, then Lincoln was given a chance to stand up in court and give his opinion about what happened. Whoa. So that was his mentor, was this fellow named Bowling Green? Bowling Green. I have to ask, was that who the town's named after? Uh, You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I've always wondered where that name came from. But okay, we'll put that aside for the the moment. So basically, here's this kid. He shows up. He's self-taught. He says, I want to be a lawyer. He goes down, probably has to borrow these law books from some lawyer, right? Right. 
because lawyers had their own law libraries. Um, he reads the books, and then he goes down to the courthouse and says, Judge, I want to be a lawyer. And the judge takes pity on him and says, okay, you sit here, watch what happens, and then I'll give you like a little Socratic tutorial on it. Is that what it was? <laughs> it, it probably was that. Now, he did actually appear before the, uh, I think it was the Illinois Supreme Court. There was a committee of uh, three justices. And uh, this is around 1837. Uh, he was accepted into the bar. It was a discussion or a, a conversation between Lincoln and these three uh, justices, if I'm correct in that, uh, where they decided he had all the wherewithal to be an attorney and therefore, boom, he's an attorney. So it was slightly different in the 19th century. Uh, Lincoln becomes an attorney. He's in New, uh, in Springfield, rather, which is a population of 2,000 people. It's still a frontier community. There's no question about that. And he sets up office with uh, John Todd Stewart. Okay, before we get to that, okay. have, I'm reminded of something. You know, the last person I talked about who became a lawyer this way was Alexander Hamilton. He left the, the, the army at the end of the revolution, and he decided he wanted to be a lawyer. And in about six months, he read for the law, and he put together an outline that was so good, it became sort of the standard bar prep outline in the state of New York for decades afterward. Lincoln did the same thing. A few decades later, 40 years later perhaps, Lincoln does the same thing that Alexander Hamilton had done just further west. This is so cool. Okay, I just, I just know. I mean, this, I mean this, these are both very impressive men, and they're both basically self-taught lawyers. Please. Okay, you were about to tell me. So he goes out and he starts practicing with I'm uh, sorry, John who, Todd Stewart okay. uh, in Springfield. Now here's the situation: John Todd Stewart uh, was more interested in politics than he was the law. Mm -hmm. So this partnership where they eat, where they split the fees fifty-fifty. John Todd Stewart becomes an active politician, or continues being an active politician, and he goes out and beats the bushes. Abraham Lincoln takes over the cases for the law firm. So here is Lincoln, who is barely aware, probably, a lot of the nuances of the law, is, is making this up as it goes along. And he would admit, Lincoln would admit, that he wasn't well-grounded in the formalities of the law. Most of his... I guess uh, ability was exemplified with was his uh, jury treatment, how he talked to juries, how he behaved in the courtroom, because he was a frontier boy practicing law on the frontier for other frontiersmen. So he fit in perfectly. He turned a vice into a virtue. He did. That is remarkable. It's Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm having a perfectly delightful discussion with my friend and colleague Stephen Wilson, the assistant director and curator of the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum, who's telling me all about Abraham Lincoln, the lawyer. After the break, we'll have a constitutional quiz, and then we'll come back and speak some more with Stephen Wilson. Stick around. time for our constitutional quiz recorded live at the state finals of the Virginia We the People competition featuring Meg Hubeck of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia standing in for the quiz guy. My name is Nigel from Glen Allen High School. For Nigel. Okay, Nigel, welcome to the game. Welcome to the show. Meg, do you have a question for Nigel? I do. Nigel's looking very confident. Are you sure? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. How many amendments were originally proposed in the Bill of Rights. How many? One, A, 10, B, 14, C, 12, or D, 13? Now, Meg, just a point of clarification, you mean how many were proposed by a two-thirds majority of Congress? Is that what we're talking yes. about? Yes. Okay, pursuant, just, just as a bit of background, pursuant to Article 5, the most common method of proposing and ratifying amendments is that two-thirds of both houses of Congress have to agree on them, then they send them out, and three-quarters of the states have to ratify them. So we're talking about how many amendments were sent out in that original batch 
for the states to look at. For the states to look at, and and, and some of them eventually became our first uh, ten amendments, the Bill of Rights. Okay. Well, so you gave away one of the answers. Did I really? You did. No, that's I didn't. okay. No, I so didn't. you know, you know that A is not the right answer. Yeah, we we, we know. We, so we don't guess A. There's no guessing of A. A is wrong. All right, what's uh what's B, C, and D again? B, fourteen. C, twelve, or D, thirteen. I'm gonna go with C. C, twelve. Ding, 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 ding. Good job. Good job, Nigel. And now let's continue our discussion with Stephen Wilson, the assistant director and curator at the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum at Lincoln Memorial University. Uh, before the break, we had been talking about Abraham Lincoln, the lawyer, the guy you, you kind of vaguely knew about uh, before he became president. Okay, so he has this analytical mind. He's largely self-taught. He teams up with this fellow, what was his name again? Stewart? John Todd Stewart. Stewart. Um, Stewart becomes the rainmaker and the politician. Right. Lincoln stays back in the office and actually argues the cases. And this is all in the 1830s, mm -hmm. 1830s and 1840s then. Right. Okay. So tell me more about Lincoln, the lawyer then. Well, Lincoln is making money uh, with his uh, legal career. The court cases run anywhere from, fees run anywhere from $2.50 to $20 or a sheep or a cow or something like that. Right. Uh, eventually, he decides that he I needs... I have to interject again. Yeah. I was a country lawyer myself okay. down in Florida, and I once received a pickup truck in, right. pay, in payment. I never got pigs or chickens. Okay. But that sort of thing still happens. Okay, go on. I didn't okay. realize that. Okay. It, it, it still happens. So, okay, so anyway, uh, Lincoln decides that he, he, he needs more grounding in the law. Mm -hmm. So he becomes a partner with Stephen Logan. Now, Stephen Logan, and of course, this is still in Springfield. Stephen Logan was a, a thin, wiry individual who was not well-liked and kind of grumpy and that sort of stuff. But in the courtroom, he was very effective in, in terms of the research he did and how he presented himself. So Lincoln learns more from Stephen Logan about research and developing the case and presenting yourself than he did from John Todd Stewart. So for a period of three to four years, it's Logan and Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln gets a third of the fees, and he and Logan practice law. Uh, Lincoln is also traveling the circuit, the 8th Judicial Circuit in, uh, in Illinois. So for maybe six months out of the year, he's on horseback going from county courthouse to county courthouse and practicing law. Stephen, you brought up a word that people hear frequently, and they don't understand that it had a literal meaning, circuit. Uh, you'll, you're, you'll hear of circuit courts of appeal. Right. You'll even hear of trial courts that are called, for some reason, circuit courts. But there really were courts that were held in various little towns, in various little hotels or taverns, and wherever they could find a room big enough to accommodate a judge and a couple of lawyers and a jury. And the lawyers and the judges would travel to the towns rather than the litigants traveling to a centralized courthouse. And they would try to travel as efficiently as they could. So they would, you, know, you can think of them sort of mapping out a circle on a map and saying, okay, first we'll go from Springfield to town A and then town B and town C. And quite literally, this would be scheduled at a certain time. The judges would get on their horses. They'd have their papers with them. The lawyers would get on their horses. They'd all ride together to the next town. And because accommodations were primitive, quite literally, sometimes these people would all be sleeping in the same bed. You, you could literally find yourself as a lawyer sleeping next to the judge who was going to hear your case the next day or the lawyer you'd argued against that day. That had to be very intimate. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. you described it perfectly. This uh -huh. is exactly what happened. Uh -huh. And at each particular venue, it was a circus. It was performance. Uh, you have, oh, this was the biggest thing oh, in town. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Was, this was like, holy cow, here comes the circus. Walt Hill Lamon was a good friend of Lincoln's. He was an attorney. When he wasn't in court, he was wrestling outside. So you think, <laughs> I don't know if you knew that story, but I yeah. I did not know that. Uh, I've never wrestled outside so, of court. Yeah, so you, you, have, you have all of this going on. Right. And, and what's happening with Lincoln, actually two things. Number one is he is gaining more and more experience at these trials, at these court dates. He is, he's learning more and more uh, about the law and about uh, his performance in the uh, courtroom. That's number one. Number two, he is building a constituency of individuals who will later on, when he decides to run for the presidency, will be his team, so to speak, to help him uh, attain that particular goal. So he's impressing people is what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. 
Well, uh, tell us about some of these cases that he picked up on the circuit or back in Springfield. What, what, what were some of the cases he argued? Some of the cases were, were, were very interesting. Now, from, uh, let's say, 1837 to 1857, he, he worked for the Illinois Central Railroad, the Rock Island Railroad. He became the highest-paid corporate attorney in Illinois. Okay, wait a second. Corporate attorney. He did. Uh, corporate attorney. You yep. do not think corporate attorney in Abraham Lincoln in, in the same breath. You just don't. You, you don't. It's it's kind of hard to picture Lincoln in a limousine, but uh, mm-hmm. in in a sense, uh, he became a very effective railroad attorney. Here's something interesting: the president, I believe, of the Illinois Central was George B. McClellan, who later on was uh, Lincoln's nemesis, if nothing else. Seriously, seriously, he represented McClellan's company. He did as a lawyer, <laughs> and then McClellan later was the ineffectual general that he, whom he relieved and who ran against him in 1864. History is nothing but fascinating. It, not, so, well, that I didn't know that either. All this, yeah, all this is wound together. Right. Uh, Lincoln is involved in the Effie Afton case where he defends the Rock Island Railroad against a suit by a steamship company. Uh, it, it's it's Wait fascinating. Wait a second. Tell me, tell me about that case. Well, in this particular case, uh, the Rock Island Railroad built a bridge across the Mississippi River. Uh, there was always concern about the navigation of steamboats. Mm-hmm. So... This steamboat collided with the bridge. The F.E. Afton collided with the bridge, burst into flames, burned a portion of the bridge, and the steamboat sunk. The steamboat owners sued the Rock Island Railroad for infringing on their navigation. Huh. Uh, Lincoln was one of the uh, defense attorneys at the, uh, for the Rock Island Railroad, and they won the case. Lincoln pointing out that this, this progress of the expansion of the United States requires, in a sense— uh, these bridges, this railroad, that the steamboat is is a, a, a product of a of a different era, but now the nation needs this fascinating transportation ability of a railroad. So it, it's it's fascinating to see how he turns these things around, and can present to juries so that they understand them. He was making what lawyers would call a public policy argument. You know, okay. you're looking beyond the actual requirements of the law, whether they've been met or not in this particular case, and you're saying, look, uh, the railroad's the future. Uh, you cannot penalize people for building railroad bridges, otherwise you're going to shut them down in the future. We need to come to a decision here that's going to encourage more bridges rather than discourage more bridges. That can be a very effective um, argument. I'm also struck by the contrast between then and now. Uh, my first job out of law school happened to be working for the Army Corps of Engineers, and they're the entity that gives permits for these sorts of things. If you want to build something in a navigable water of the United States, there's this lengthy process you go through. So it would have been a very different legal case mm-hmm. in the 21st century, and the question would all turn on whether the permits were properly granted and whether you'd complied with them, et cetera, et cetera. But this is back in the days, quite literally, of the Wild West. They don't have this permitting program. They don't have all these regulations. So it's basically, well, you know, railroads are a good thing. <laughs> we, we can't penalize the Rock Island Railroad. And he won on that basis. He did. And, uh, that is so cool. It, uh, you actually said it much better than I did, so I'll rely on, on you know, your description. But there's also a, a court case I think that's kind of fascinating. It's called the Chicken Bone Case. And the I, Chicken Bone uh, Case, which here, here brought us go. here today. I want to hear about this well, one. This, this is kind of amazing. A gentleman named Fleming was a carpenter, and in 1855 there was a fire in Springfield. A gentleman was killed, and Fleming was caught under a collapsing chimney. Mm. Uh, both of his legs were broken. Fleming goes to two doctors who do their best to set uh, the, the brakes, uh, and then uh, one of his legs is not healing properly, so he goes back in, and the doctors try to break it again and reset it. Ouch. Uh, yeah. Is it uh, Now, yeah. they did have chloroform, but apparently that wasn't enough. Mm. And um, apparently Fleming ended up with a short leg and a crooked leg. So he sues these two doctors. Lincoln becomes the defense attorney for the doctors. And this is the way he handles it. It's kind of fascinating. He manages to win two continuances uh, for the court case because he knows his jury, the frontier jury, is predisposed to fine for Fleming. Uh, The good old boy Fleming, he's injured. The doctors uh, did a terrible job. It's their fault. They should pay Fleming ten thousand dollars, which in eighteen fifty Springfield is a lot of money. Right. So Lincoln wins two continuances, but the the thing that's really fascinating is how, in summary, he manages to well, actually end up with a draw in the court case. 
he talks about Fleming's uh, legs being broken, and he said, well, it's just like a chicken. And he holds up two chicken bones. He shows one chicken bone. It's pliable. He can bend it and twist it. He said, this is a young chicken. And Fleming was middle-aged. And then Lincoln holds up a, a, another chicken bone. He said, this is an old chicken. And he, and he breaks it, and it snaps. So what he's drawing here is, look, if, if Fleming were a young man, his bones would be fine. The older man, they just aren't going to heal. The starch is out of them, he says. The starch is out of So the jury, of course, now this is a frontier jury, and, right. and most of them are probably illiterate, uh, but they understand perfectly what Lincoln is saying. Uh, Lincoln's drawn this, this picture for them, uh, so they can't come to a conclusion, can't come to a verdict. And that's when the uh, case becomes a draw, so the doctors only have to pay court costs. So Lincoln has a potential $10,000 med mal case, right. which is a big amount there that he's defending these guys on, and he manages to walk away from there with his doctors only paying court costs. That's right. I'd call that a victory. That's, I, would, I would think and so. And he does well. it by bringing out chicken bones. Yep. See, that is just masterful, because as you said, you've got to know your audience. These farmers may not have been sophisticated. They may not even have been literate, as you say, but by golly, they knew chicken bones. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, true. many of them had probably slaughtered chickens on an almost daily basis for much of their lives. And, and, uh, and they knew this stuff, and that, they could understand that. So it's really not the doctor's fault. This guy's just old. That's right. And, and Lincoln, uh, as, as a friend of his pointed out, was a close observer of human nature. He understood people's motives. He understood how people fought and why they wanted things. So uh, what he did is, is explain as simply as possible to show this frontier jury what the case was really about. That's very effective. That's a good lesson in advocacy. You've already described two things where he is sort of an establishment-type lawyer. Right. He's representing corporations. He's representing defendants rather than plaintiffs in a med mal case, medical malpractice case. He's starting to look pretty establishment here. And if correct me if I'm wrong, he starts becoming rather well-to-do, doesn't he? I mean, he makes pretty good money here. He's doing well. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can consider him upper middle class. He's living in a house that uh, is very nice in Springfield. Still standing, isn't it? Still standing. I haven't been there. Yep. No, I need to go. Okay. His highest fee is $5,000, and that's from the Illinois Central Railroad for a court case involving uh, taxes on uh, uh, railroad property, I think in McLean County. But Lincoln had to sue the Illinois Central to get that. He does. He gets $5,000. He splits that with Billy Herndon, who was by then his partner. So uh, partners, we have uh, John Todd Stewart, Stephen Logan, and Billy Herndon. Lincoln is also, um, oh gosh, it, it's, it's amazing that he is able to utilize every aspect of his personality to communicate. I'll give you an, an idea. Uh, this, of course, is a political example, but it's, you know, it applies. Uh, at one particular debate, he and Stephen Douglas were going back and forth and back and forth. Okay, so now we're forwarding to the 1850s, right? This is 18, well, yeah, it might have been even before the 1850s, uh, but in, in this particular case, uh, Douglas was talking about uh, uh, the the failures of Lincoln. Uh, he talked about Lincoln as a storekeeper. He was a failure. As a riverboat man, he was a failure. As a surveyor, he was a failure. All these things. And then Stephen Douglas says to the crowd, and Lincoln, uh, worst of all, sold liquor over the counter when he owned a store. A grocery is what they called it in the 19th century. Right. Well, Douglas sits down, and Lincoln stands up, and he says, Judge Douglas is absolutely correct. I was a failure as a riverboat man, as a surveyor, as a storekeeper, and yes, I sold liquor over the counter. But what Judge Douglas didn't tell you is, while I was on one side of the counter, he was on the other. <laughs> I sold liquor to Douglas. To Douglas. <laughs> So this is this is Lincoln's uh, ability to weave humor into uh, debates, into the courtroom, uh, into everyday conversations. And what he creates is the persona of a common man and every man. What uh, what Theodore Roosevelt said of Lincoln, he was a plain man, meaning he was just the, the average type of guy on the, on the frontier. So is it a fair statement then that his law practice and all of the exposure he got and all the connections he made led him into politics, led directly into politics? I think they were neck and neck. But what, what certainly influenced his political uh, standing uh, is the fact that he was known as an Austin attorney. 
Mm-hmm. He was a very competent attorney. He learned early on not to be hateful or spiteful in a court case, but rather to present it as clearly as possible. So you have, it's like a two, a, a team of horses. On the one side, you have uh, Lincoln pulling ahead the, the attorney. On the other side, you have Lincoln, the politician. So they're neck and neck as far as his advancement uh, in Illinois. That's a very difficult thing to do, um, to be aggressive, to be zealous, to be, as you say, relentless in the courtroom, and yet not to give offense as you do so. And that takes us back to the circuit writing. As much as I don't relish the thought of sharing a bed with my opposing counsel, um, <laughs> that sort of intimacy militates against what we like to call ad hominem attacks. I mean, I'm not going to, if, if you and I, I know, are going to be staying in the same room. In fact, maybe we spent last night in the same room together and we're going to be back there tonight. I'm not going to let my temper get out of control. I'm not going to start attacking you as my opposing lawyer. And I'm not going to let my emotions run away with me. It's going to force me to recognize that after this case is over, we still need to get along. And that's a lesson we try to impart to our students here. I mean, law professors all over the country try to impart that to their students, is that you cannot make this personal and that part of being a professional is is separating your own feelings um, from whatever zealousness you feel about the case. That's true, and, and uh, it's a good way to, uh, to explain it because uh, Lincoln was traveling with uh, eight or nine attorneys. Uh, they share one room. These attorneys will be in the courtroom with him, so he has to what he called a cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason. There's a reason behind the way you behave. I, I think uh, oftentimes that people talk about honest Abe Lincoln. Well, being honest was to him the most logical way to approach life. Your word literally is your bond. When you say something, you mean it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Lincoln is is finding a way, uh, growing up, finding a way to deal with uh, uh, his adversaries. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, to give you an example of one uh, uh, one adversary that turned out well, could have turned out much worse. Actually, was Lincoln's duel. Um, what? Yeah, what? A, a lot of people duel. A lot of people don't realize this. Yeah, um, you hear duel and you think of Andrew Jackson. I, I Lincoln, know. Okay, <laughs> please spill the story. Well, uh, Abraham Lincoln got into a, uh, an argument with James Shields, who was a comptroller of the state of Illinois. He was a Democrat. Uh, what happened is Mary Todd before she married Lincoln, and a friend of hers wrote a letter making fun of James Shields, who was kind of a brittle individual and didn't have much of a sense of humor. Lincoln, being a gentleman, told Shields, I'm the one that wrote the letter. So Shields challenged him to a duel. Now, it's getting out of hand, and Lincoln didn't know quite how to handle it, so he said, okay, as the one who was challenged, I have my choice of weapons. So he said, let's use cavalry broadswords of the uh, longest or the largest size and stand at one end, either end of a plank of wood. Now, Shields is maybe 5'4". <laughs> Lincoln is 6'4", with arms that reach about 30 or 40 feet. So Shields <laughs> is, is in big trouble. Right. So Cavalry broadswords. Broadswords of the, I don't know the largest Shields, size. I don't know if I could lift one of those. Well, things. well that's, that's where I think, uh, I think some of uh, Shields' seconds said, I don't think this is a good thing for you. Right. So they decided to exchange apologies instead. Lincoln was so chagrined at being forced into a duel that he didn't want to mention it ever again in his life. He was just embarrassed at being the person who talked about cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason and yet had let reason get out of bounds and end up with a duel. Well, because a woman was involved. And it's always the woman's fault, isn't it? You know, you could be right, Stuart. I don't know. You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week my guest is Stephen Wilson, the assistant director and curator at the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum at Lincoln Memorial University. After the break, we'll have Library Ann with a stack quote, and then we'll come back and finish our discussion with Stephen Wilson. Stick around.
And now here's Anne Walsh Long with this week's stack quote. We, of course, call her Library Anne. Before Abraham Lincoln became our 16th president, he was a lawyer. Lincoln practiced law for 25 years from 1836 to 1861 when he began his presidency. There are numerous books that focus on Lincoln, and at one point, the Library of Congress estimated that a book about Abraham Lincoln was published every five and a half days. However, his life as a lawyer is not the focus of these books, and even more rare is the exploration of Lincoln's view of immigrants. Which brings us to today's book and stack quote. Jason H. Silverman is a professor of history at Winthrop University in South Carolina. In 2015, Professor Silverman wrote a book, The Concise Lincoln Library, Lincoln and the Immigrant, which was published by Southern Illinois University Press and available through ProQuest's eBrary collection. In his book, Silverman traces the chronology of Lincoln's life as he met immigrants as a boy sailing down the Mississippi River to the days when he worked with immigrants before his election. Lincoln believed gods must love immigrants because he made so many of them. Silverman also provides a backdrop to Lincoln's life during the mid-19th century. During the 20 years before the Civil War, more than 4 million immigrants, mostly from Ireland, Germany, and Scandinavia, entered the United States. Additionally, many migrated across the Mexican border. In addition to a variety of different nationalities entering America, many of these immigrants were Catholic, which challenged the beliefs and political power of American Protestants. There was a political movement in the 1950s called the Anti-Immigrant Know-Nothings, and while there weren't any national political contenders, these governors, mayors, and congressmen built their careers on opposing immigration at the local level. While Lincoln was practicing law in Springfield, Illinois, he took a German language class from an unemployed professor of languages, which helped cement his relations with the German community in and around Springfield. Most Germans were against slavery, and as a group, are often credited for sweeping Lincoln into the White House. In 1858, Lincoln was invited to attend a Fourth of July celebration of the German Republicans in Chicago. Unable to attend, Lincoln wrote a letter to the future mayor of Chicago, Anton C. Hessing. Lincoln wrote, Our German fellow citizens, ever true to liberty, the Union, and the Constitution, true to liberty, not selfishly, but upon principle, not for special classes of men, but for all men, true to the Union and the Constitution as the best means to advance liberty. About a month earlier, Lincoln delivered his acceptance speech as the Illinois United States Senator with his famous speech that began, A house divided against itself cannot stand. Although Lincoln was a member of the Republican Party, the immigrant group that Lincoln belonged to was the Irish, which were mostly Democrats. Many Irish immigrants in Springfield felt left out of America's success story, filling the bottom of the occupational ladder and often had little or no property to show for their labor. On the other hand, Lincoln was one of Springfield's success stories and acted as a living symbol of the success of the free labor social ladder. Interestingly, Lincoln was concerned that Democratic Irish voters would lie about their residents and vote fraudulently in the upcoming election. There were roughly 400 Irish laborers that were recently brought into town before the election to work on the new railroad. Today's stat quote is from Honest Abe himself in a conversation with his law partner, William Herndon. What I dread, Lincoln wrote, is that the Irish will introduce into the doubtful district numbers of men who are legal voters in all respects except residents, and who will swear to residents and thus put it beyond our power to exclude them. When there is a known body of these voters, could not a true man of the detective class be introduced among them in disguise who could be in the nick of time and control their votes? In response, Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon, asked, what shall we do? Shall we tamely submit to the Irish, or shall we arise and cut their throats? If blood is shed in Illinois to maintain the purity of the ballot box and the rights of the popular will, do not at all be surprised. This is Library Anne with the Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law with today's stat quote. And now it's time to finish our discussion with Stephen Wilson, the assistant director of the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum at Lincoln Memorial University, who's telling us all about Abraham Lincoln's years at the bar. No, not that kind of bar. I mean, Lincoln the lawyer. We'll also learn a little bit about Lincoln's private life. You mentioned Mary Todd, and uh, of course, uh, Mary Todd and Lincoln eventually do get married, and uh, people have probably heard about her and her White House years and the tragedies and the deaths of her children she had to suffer and all the other indignities of her later life, but let's focus on this period in Lincoln's life. Uh, tell me a little bit about the courtship of Lincoln and Mary Todd. It was a, 
uh, kind of an interesting situation. He was amazed by her because she was sophisticated and uh, charming and witty and had all these social graces that he did not possess. Apparently there was, when they first became engaged, some sort of argument or misunderstanding and, and Lincoln, either Lincoln or Mary Todd broke the engagement. So he was thrown into a blue funk. Uh, he was in depression. Finally, their friends managed to get them back together again. So now we have Lincoln and, and Mary uh, being engaged. And she was a tiny little thing. Wasn't she, she was tiny. Five uh, two or something? Five two. She came from a very wealthy family, mm-hmm. a very influential family in uh, in Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky. The Todd's, T-O-D-D, Lincoln himself, they were important because God himself spelled his name with only one D, and the Todd's <laughs> used two. <laughs> So uh, the day of the wedding, uh, Lincoln is in his boarding house, a boarding room, and he's uh, blacking his boots. The boarding housekeeper's son comes by and says, Mr. Lincoln, where are you off to? Uh, Of course, he's getting ready for the wedding, and he says, to hell, I suppose. Which is probably not a good way to start a relationship, but I... I I hope that uh, didn't get back to Mary. uh, Probably, yeah, because she, believed me, she had... Well, let's put it this way. Uh, at least one time, he angered her, and she hit him in the back of the we- uh, head with a piece of uh, firewood. <laughs> so it was that kind of a relationship. Right. She could be uh, uh, volatile. Uh, she certainly was a, a caring wife. She tried to get him to behave, like she said, dress up like somebody, wear your clothes the way you should, behave like a gentleman, take care of the kids. He could be distant. He could somehow lose sight of what was going on around him. But they, they certainly loved each other. They, they certainly supported each other. She was as much uh, a competent politician as he was, although, of course, she wasn't allowed to participate openly in politics. I wonder if it caused a bit of tension between them. So, because, as we've said, Lincoln was solidly upper middle class um, once he was established as a lawyer. And I've seen pictures of his house, which to me looks like a, a very nice house, uh, certainly for the time. Um, but if she came from all this money... I wonder if that was a source of tension, that she not only had the polish and the manners of the upper class, but she had more material expectations. I think that was a part of it. Uh, uh, To give her credit, though, when they first got married, uh, their home was a one room above a tavern in uh, Springfield. And when their son Robert was born nine months later, all three of them lived in a single room. So she was willing to put up with with at least these things. And as a Mm -hmm. matter of fact, she told her friends that she expected to marry a man who would become president of the United States, which, of course, she did. Right. I think the issues that that kind of compound the relationship centered around his uh, periods of depression. And he tended toward what they used to call melancholy, right? That's correct, yeah. He would uh, kind of fade out and just stare for uh, hours into a fire, or he would become silent and wander off. Uh, She was a manic depressive. So she had oh extreme highs or extreme lows. Uh, like I said, she could be explosive. Uh, she would uh, yell at uh, servants. Um, uh, they went through servants, uh, I think, something like uh, going through a bag of peanuts every once oh, in a wow. while. Uh, it was just the circumstances, I think, of the personalities involved, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, when they come to the White House, it becomes even worse for poor Mary. Yeah, it did. And in fact, they lost three of their four children, didn't they, eventually? They did. Uh, Robert was first born, then Eddie. Eddie died at age three in 1850, I believe. Willie dies at age 11 in 1862. While they're in the White House. While they're in the White House, yeah. Uh, And then Tad, uh, Thomas, dies, I believe, in 1871. Wow, so she loses three of her four children. And the period we're talking about, when he's in Springfield, they lost the first of those. And that's that was, right. who's that, Willie, you said? Uh, no, it was uh, Eddie. 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 Edward Eddie. Baker died. I've never yeah. even heard of Eddie. See, so he was three years old. He was three years old. Well, uh, yeah, so you, you have... That's going to put a strain on any marriage. Eddie. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lincoln was an amazing guy. And it's, it's kind of funny because he could... His mind would sometimes wander. Right. Or he could not... Uh, there were times where he didn't focus on things... Um, I'll give you an example. He and uh, Billy Herndon, of course, had their 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 law office, and uh, Lincoln was hoping that when Billy Herndon joined the firm, he would bring organization with him. Well, apparently, uh, Billy brought no such thing. <laughs> right. The place was a wreck. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. There were there were papers all over the place. There was a pile of papers in the corner with a note on top of it that said, "If you can't find it any place else, look here." Mm. 
So, uh, and in the old saw about Lincoln carrying his legal documents in his top hat, he did. No way. Uh, no, That's he did. That's really true. He did. He, he carried these documents, and at least one time he had to run home and change hats because they had the wrong hat and the wrong documents. <laughs> this is fantastic. It, well, I think I've learned one thing today, uh, above all others, and that is that you have one of the coolest jobs there is because you just get to sit around all day learning this stuff, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it reading really is. these it's... old documents and looking at these old artifacts and learning more about Lincoln. So that is a fantastic thing, but it really is only your day job because you've got, I just learned over lunch today, you've got a really cool night job as well. What do you do in your spare time, Stephen? In, in my spare time, I write, histor write historical novels. Not just historical novels, but alternate historical novels. I try and take... Uh, now that, now let's just clarify. That means you're not writing... You're not setting a story within a historical moment, which is a historical novel. Right. You know? What you're doing is you're changing things and then speculating on what might have been different which is a really cool genre, which I really enjoy. But go on, tell me about this. Well, it, it, it's, you're right about that. It, it's fun to take uh, the, the known facts and figures and circumstances and kind of weave them and change them and warp them a little bit. Um, I, it, it's fun because I can do historical research. I get to create characters. I uh, have an opportunity to, well, there's no, no good way to put it. I lie, Stuart. <laughs> You're just a liar. These books get... are a pack of lies, uh, right. but hopefully they're entertaining lies. And one of them was about Abraham Lincoln, wasn't it? Uh, actually, two of them. The two first them. one was uh, Abraham, uh, President Lincoln's um, spy. President uh, Lincoln's spy. And that's still available on that's Amazon? That's still available. Okay. Uh, President Lincoln's secret is the follow-up to that. Right. And then the uh, three novels of World War II, uh, Voyage of the Gray Wolves, uh, Between the Hunters and the Hunted, and Armada. Right. And I just had published Roosevelt's Jubilee about Teddy Roosevelt and his uh, young wife uh, involved uh, falling into a conspiracy to assassinate Queen Victoria on her Golden Jubilee. These are all so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's neat. It really it's just, is. It's great fun. Since we're talking about Lincoln, uh, let's talk about uh, the two Lincoln novels. What, without giving away uh, what happens and then what was the premise? What was the ahistorical premise? In the first novel, President Lincoln's uh, Spy, uh, Washington, of course, was a, a city replete with, with conspiracies. Everybody was conspiring about something. Right. So so uh, Colonel Fitz Dunaway, who was an uh, army officer who has gotten into hot water, is given an opportunity. Well, if you want your regiment, then you have to help us uncover the spy network, which he does and finds out that the network itself is not only within Washington, it's the highest levels of government. Right. And the second novel uh, with Fitz Dunaway is uh, President Lincoln's Secret. And uh, a, uh, a brilliant en engineer for the Union uh, disappears, and he is carrying with him all these secrets about ironclads and weapons and that sort of thing. Fitz Dunaway is dispatched to try and find him, and in the process uncovers a plot to launch an attack using Greek fire against Washington, D.C., that is one of the coolest things. Most people have probably not heard of Greek fire, but as I told you at lunch, I've learned a little bit about this because my elder son, Tom, uh, did a senior thesis at Caltech all about Greek fire. And a Greek fire was this supposedly mythical flamethrower that the ancient Greeks supposedly used to some great effect during a battle. And uh, Tom's, uh, he majored both in medieval history and in um, mechanical engineering, and he came up with this really cool idea. Uh, and that was to go back and speculate as to whether it really could have happened, and if so, how might they have done it? And so he came up with a thesis that, that actually said, well, they could have done this, they could have done that, and they might have gotten this result. I've encouraged him to actually go on and construct such a device and do an actual test of it. Thus far, he's not taking me up on that. <laughs> but you actually also picked up on the idea of Greek fire as yeah. a weapon that might have been used, a, a giant flamethrower during the Civil War. That's right. That is such a cool idea. It's, it's, that's where it's fun, honestly, uh, writing, Stuart, is, is it's where you get to look at these little these events and circumstances and say, gosh, I wonder if this happened or that happened. And as you know, in, in writing, uh, sometimes the, uh, the plot takes over and it just carries you forward or the, or the characters will intrude and, and suddenly the ideas you had for a particular chapter 
change because the characters have been inserting themselves. Right. It's uh, it's fascinating. It's an exciting process. And moreover, I think there's a great deal of legitimacy to it. Now, now you're the historian, but I understand that there's an entire branch of, of history that's called counterfactual history, where serious historians will ask, what would have been different if this battle had gone the other way, yeah. or if this person had died, uh, or if this thing had happened when things were very tense? Because history is contingent. We tend to look at history as set in stone or you know, established, preordained, and all the rest of it. No. Any day, anything can happen. And some decisions we make, some circumstances can be decisive. Now, I understand there are great forces moving through history and that you know, I'm not subscribing necessarily to the great man theory of history. But I think that, uh, that even, even normal people, when one different thing happens in their lives, things can go very differently, and I think that's true of nations uh, as well. So this is a serious inquiry. It is. A, it's it's fascinating for me. Uh, I just finished a book on Okinawa, and uh, the question arises— Reading it or writing it? No, 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 no reading, reading it. it. Okay, okay. <laughs> and the question arises, um, uh, had, had there been uh, an, uh, an attack, an invasion of the home islands, what would have happened? And it's it's a matter of, uh, as you pointed out, uh, simple ingredients or, or or slivers of time or something changes uh, what happens in history, and you begin to wonder: Were there been two, three million dead with an invasion of the home islands after the invasion right. of Okinawa? And, and yeah, these these are legitimate questions. What prevented the invasion was the advent of the atomic bomb. Yeah. And that was a very iffy proposition. Let's just say they'd messed up a calculation, or yep. let's just say that they'd fabricated a part uh, inefficiently and it, and it failed, and, and that therefore the whole thing was put off for a month or two, well, or, or longer, maybe even canceled. Um, well, then that would have been the plan. I mean, the plan was to go in, I think, on the 1st of November, and the casualties were the low estimates were half a million or so, yep. and the high estimates were several million. History could have been vastly, vastly different. I've spoken to people who credit their own survival to the atomic bomb because they were slated to go over and be part of the invasion, literally. Uh, I've, I've spoken to World War II veterans about that. So this is serious stuff, but it's also very entertaining. So once again, what is the current book that you're working on or the one you just published? Uh, Roosevelt's Jubilee. Roosevelt's Jubilee. The young Theodore Roosevelt, before he's even police commissioner in New York, is, finds himself over in Britain and somehow, perhaps, I'm not going to ask you to give it away, maybe thwarts <laughs> a, uh, a, um, an assassination attempt on, uh, on Queen Victoria. That is a really cool premise. Uh, so this is all available on Amazon. Yes. So, And your name is Stephen Wilson. So all the people just Google your name. It's S-T-E-V-E-N. That's correct. Okay. And they can find these books online and purchase them. And I hope that they will. And I thank you very much for coming here today and telling us about those books and about, of course, Abraham Lincoln. Stuart, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much to Stephen Wilson. He's my friend and colleague and assistant director and curator at the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum at Lincoln Memorial University, who told us all about Lincoln the lawyer. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Library Ann is Ann Walsh-Long. Our music is by the fifes and drums of Colonial Williamsburg. You can find our podcast and our Facebook page and our Twitter account and all that good stuff simply by Googling our name, Your Weekly Constitutional. Three words, Your Weekly Constitutional, and I guarantee you, you're going to find lots of good stuff. My name is Stuart Harris, and remember, you are a part of the American experiment.